Hello, and welcome to the second season of Here There Be Dragons. I'm your host, Jess Myers. We've been working over the past few months to bring together a very special season for you. Last season, we focused on the stories of seven New Yorkers, their fears and identities in a fast-changing city. This season, with an expanded team, we're crossing the Atlantic and exploring the city of Paris. I spoke to 32 residents of the Paris metro region. I met them in bars, in cafes, in parks, in their homes, offices, and studios, where we chatted about their experiences with fear and identity in the French capital. You might remember the horrifying news we've heard from Paris as terrorist attacks rocked the city. Three attacks in the past two years. The one on November 13, 2015, left 130 people dead and 413 injured. These attacks led to increased media attention and speculation about whether France's capital was safe, what to do from there, and who to blame. Although the attacks in Paris happened over a year ago, the shock they left in their wake is still visible throughout the city. For places like Place de la République and around affected bars like the Belle Equipe and the Petit Cambodge, the candles, graffiti, signs, and flowers left after the attacks have been swept into the National Archives. The Bataclan, the concert hall where the most brutal attacks happened, has recently reopened. Plaques now memorialize the dead, replacing spontaneous shows of grief. But even now, residents still struggle with how to return to normal. It's noisy though, isn't it? But I think it's probably spinning. It's probably getting to the end of its cycle. Yeah, I can try and, sw- I can try and switch it off. Okay, I'm, my name's Alison Culliford and I'm 48. I'm a journalist and translator and I grew up in Somerset, England. And I came to Paris, but when I came to Paris I really felt this is the place that I want to live. I was actually very near to the Belle Equipe shooting, just a couple of streets away and was locked in a bar there. I felt this terrible sense of grief And then the following day was when there was this mass movement to go to Place de la République. So I went out to that. I felt scared. Yeah, I felt, is this absolute suicide to go to this mass square? You know, if the terrorists want to do another attack, they're obviously going to choose there. But I looked around and saw all these other people going there. And I thought, well, yeah, we do have this, what we have to do. And it was also really healing really healing to be there with all these people. I, f- I felt some people had been really brave as well to turn up with signs saying I am a Muslim and I'm against violence. I was a bit annoyed at how it was represented by the media because they just went around looking for white French Parisians to interview whereas what I saw in Place de la République was really was what Paris is which is people from everywhere, from lots of different religions and lots of different colors of skin, and that's what Paris is for me. To a certain degree, we're obligated to continue like before. Life in the city doesn't allow us to do otherwise. Life continues, with or without terrorists. Of course, we look at who boards the trains or passes in the street. You look even when people have large bags. Maybe that's what's really changed. We take a few more precautions, are more careful around people who behave strangely. Also, if they're bearded, right? The big cliché, but it's inevitable. It's with the best non-racist intentions. That's the pattern that's circulated daily in the media. 
Je crois que le lendemain des attentats du 13, je suis sortie de chez moi le lendemain. The day after the attacks on the 13th, I went out. I stayed out all day. I walked for half an hour. It was important for me to walk. It was important for me to tell myself that what happened is serious, but at a global scale. It was going to happen. It's serious and tragic for sure, but I don't want to shut myself in. My country isn't at war. There's no bombs falling, no civilians dying around me every day. So I can't behave as if my city is under siege. This is an isolated incident. We pray that it doesn't happen again, but if it happens again, it happens again. And unfortunately, we can't do much about it. Ça se reproduit et malheureusement, on peut pas y faire grand-chose. As Steffi, a 27-year-old editorial consultant, just described, in the wake of the November attacks, many Parisians felt a strong desire to be out in the city. In the days following the attacks, while dignitaries marched in solidarity with France, many locals showed their solidarity on terrasse, sitting in the famous open-air patios of bars and drinking in defiance. A demonstration of the Gallic Shrug, proudly continuing business as usual, even with a fear of danger. But this shrug isn't new, nor is it the whole story. As a capital city, Paris has been the stage for the performance of political violence at many charged moments in the nation's history. When the stakes of violent attack in Paris are political, citizen responses to that violence become political as well. The desire to return to normal is also a desire to prove that the violence and so the ideas that it represented were not strong enough to shift the nation. But in subtle ways, they are. For Franck and Jacqueline, Attacks from the recent past also pushed them to reflect on their responses in the present. For Franck, a 40-year-old architect, the recent attacks brought to mind the 1995 train bombings carried out by an Algerian extremist group. In 1995, there were attacks in France and in the subway. At the time, I had just arrived in Lyon, and the only way to get around was the subway. When I took the subway, I thought to myself, well, here we are. If something happens, I have no choice. It took six months before I started taking the subway without really thinking about it. And it was kind of the same on November 13th. For Jacqueline, a 94-year-old retiree, the attacks brought back memories of the bombings in the 60s during the liberation of Algeria from French colonial rule. The attacks were mostly during the war with Algeria, one against Malraux, who was not home. The granddaughter of the super for his house had an arm torn off. She was a small girl who was maybe five or six. It was very tense, but there was still a part of France that wanted the liberation of Algeria. Before, they planted a few firebombs. Now, a guy driving a truck killed 80 people, hurt 210. We've never had anything like this before. But now, everything is amplified in every sense, in good as in evil. It also creates mistrust, and it's terrible because it is unclear who is doing it. It's very complicated. In both cases, the French government implemented a security measure called le plan Vigipirate, which translates to, watch out for pirates. It's the French equivalent of the terror alert that was used in the U.S. post 9-11. The state of emergency law that's been in effect since the November 13th attacks was written in the 1950s during General Charles de Gaulle's presidency in response to the civil unrest Jacqueline just mentioned. It was meant to expand police power by setting curfews and authorizing extra-legal search and seizure. As colonial and post-colonial attacks, these bombings were considered a national issue, the painful transition away from the colonial past. 
However, the attacks in 2015 and 2016 were approached as international issues, even though the assailants were mostly born in France. After the attacks, the French implemented a number of national and international security responses, including a bombing campaign in Syria. Fabrice Dalmeda, a history professor at the University of Paris, Pantheon SF, as well as a prolific author and creator of Le Siècle des Émotions, a documentary radio series about the emotional effects of history on the nation, spoke to my co-producer, Adélie, about the strategy behind France's response to the attacks. L'avantage de problématiser les attentats de Paris comme le produit... He says that the advantage of situating the Paris attacks as the product of international conflict is that it permits France to end enter into the grand mythology of a civilization conflict, meaning that we, the French, are Christians attacked by Muslims. And this reading confirms Muslim extremist worldviews. If we consider this attack as something that came from us, the French, then we can consider how citizens can mobilize in terms of education, integration, and eventually local surveillance. If we consider this attack as something foreign, then the mobilization of citizens has to come through the military and external intervention. Residents that I spoke to didn't feel reassured when seeing paratroopers and soldiers in the streets and in subway stations. Instead, they served as a constant reminder that the threat of danger could be anywhere. Seeing paratroopers with machine guns on the street doesn't make me feel safe. First, it doesn't do much good. It's more show than reality. And then it makes me think of the opposite of what it's supposed to. It should make me feel safe, but it reminds me that I might be unsafe. And policy rhetoric is obviously manipulated. So there's a complexity to the way that fear is used. Fear can do violent things, and it can trigger thoughtless, dumb, defensive reactions that are destructive. But I think we have to have a little fear. Someone who has no fear, that's someone who isn't human. For Danya, a 19-year-old student, seeing paratroopers felt uncomfortable not just because of the specter of terrorism, but also because of the way they would scrutinize her. Okay, I'll probably be switching between French and English um, because depending on the subject, I'm more comfortable in one or the other. I will say, though, I was very uncomfortable for a long time because when I they would all check me out and talk about me, these like soldiers. <laughs> I wasn't interpreting as they're checking me out suspiciously. They're checking me out like sexually. After the attacks in Paris and in Nice, the popular line in the French media was that these terrorist attacks weren't attacks on people, but on the French way of life. But for people who fall outside of that stereotype of this lifestyle, young and white, expressing freedom through consumption, the message was confusing. Many young French people chose to resist by going out to bars and proving that they wouldn't let terrorists change their way of life. But what about French people who don't live like that, or can't? After the state of emergency was implemented, police officers no longer had to go to a judge to search private property. Since then, restaurants, religious spaces, and homes of primarily Muslim residents have been searched without warning by armed police officers. This has left Muslim residents in a difficult position. How do they show solidarity? How does France show solidarity to them? Both Danya and Yassine, a 23-year-old student from Morocco, told me about their concerns. Here's Danya again. There are people that feel uncomfortable around like, minorities, and that's 
still a thing. Et surtout maintenant, avec tous les, les, toutes les attaques terroristes, uh, I've noticed, like, if there's someone who looks Arab on the metro, like, people will look at them as if they're, like, threatened or, like, suspiciously. And I've noticed that. Also because I'm Arab. Like, I think it was the other day we were on the metro and there was, like, a family of... Of, I don't I don't know where they're from but they were Muslim and they were on the metro and they had like suitcases with them and tout le monde les regardait like suspiciously like what are they doing like why do they have suitcases like no 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 tandis qu'avant that wouldn't be at all something people would be phased by which is very sad donc une femme qui met le voile et qui rentre so a woman who wears the veil and goes into a subway with a backpack we start looking at her maybe she has a bomb I don't know what she has in this bag what will she do More and more it happens that people will say to them, yeah, go back to where you came from. So it went up a notch, this thing about profiling people. He's a Christian, he's a Muslim, he's a Jew. It's kind of divided and it gets worse. What I really notice is that it gets worse and worse and you need a solution for that. Because the problem is that they can't control people like that. It'll explode one day. There has been a groundswell of criticism about politicians manipulating the meaning of the recent attacks to advance their own agendas. Both Moena, a 26-year-old founder of the media platform Blacks to the Future, and Frank, a 42-year-old economic development manager, are immigrants to France. Moena is from Benin, and Frank grew up in East Germany. Both are concerned about the current political conversation. I have a friend who was celebrating her birthday and they were completely shot up. She's still in the hospital. She lost friends. She has friends who were seriously injured in amputation. And it's true that no one emphasized the fact that she's black and her friends were. These attacks affected young people, people who were the most open in theory. There's a sense that the younger generation shouldn't be so idealistic. This isn't a world of care bears. After recovering, the party line was they attacked our lifestyle. But that's kind of disgusting. It was a defense of capitalism, and that was horrible. But I think there's an understanding that you have to whip out the scary, scheming political debate. This is Islam against the West. There's also a way for politics to use that, which allowed them to extend the state of emergency. Now I really feel like we're in this process of political manipulation. It's strange because France wants to be so colorblind when in fact it's not. Everything is much more difficult to analyze. In the U.S., everything is clear, black, white, Latino. You know what the communities are. Here, the one new category now is just Muslims, the black sheep that everyone has to hate. We never talk about black as it relates to black people, so we erase that all the time, everywhere, absolutely. You're unable to identify a problem in a racial way. I asked Frank whether he saw any similarities between the security he experienced growing up in East Germany during the Cold War and the security responses he sees in Paris now. The only link that exists between the two is that now I fear that the state will fall back on pure protectionism. It's always the same discussion around individualism, freedom, and security in the end. And I fear that the state will become unreasonable. I'll say something horrible, but it's a good illustration. With so few attacks, I'm ready to take this level of terrorism if that leaves me my personal freedom. Francoise, a 58-year-old architecture professor, thinks that the political conversation surrounding the attacks is a small part of a larger global trend. As we grow older, we feel more vulnerable. One of the biggest reasons French society is so terrified of everything is because it's an aging society. 
We feel more threatened when we get older. We feel more fragile. Western societies are all aging compared to new countries. Perhaps they've arrived at a moment of their golden age, their height, the peak of their influence. They're crumbling, collapsing, and that contributes to a feeling of impermanence that maybe the end of a world is beginning, which makes us feel less stable. Even before the attacks, immigration was a central issue in France. But in the weeks after, the discussion really came to a head. Should France close its borders to immigrants and refugees? But because of colonization, immigration in France is complicated. Many of the immigrant populations in France have been there for well over a century. Having experienced the heaviest losses during the World Wars, the French government set up programs to attract young men from the colonies to work in French factories, very similar to the programs in the U.S. that brought Mexican labor in the 1940s. In order to house these new populations, the government began enormous social housing projects in the Parisian banlieue, suburbs just outside of the city. The projects that were built starting in the 1950s are called the Grands Ensembles, les Cités, or simply les Tours, the towers. These projects house not only immigrant groups, but also the white working class and French settlers who were recently expelled from liberated colonies. As the immigrant population grew, so did the racist sentiment against these housing projects. Today, many are run down and have reputations for crime and violence. In 2005, police neglect led to the deaths of two young boys, sparking a series of revolts demanding better local services. Since then, social housing firms like Paris Habitat have started programs to improve the Grands Ensembles. But when it was discovered that some of the assailants from the recent terror attacks had lived in the Grands Ensembles, public opinion soured even further. Saida, a manager at Paris Habitat, has had problems with public opinion of the northern banlieue, Saint-Denis. Saint-Denis has a complicated reputation, particularly with the November 13th attacks, in which the assailants at the Bataclan all lived in Saint-Denis. There is a prejudice against that neighborhood, despite everything that's been done in the city to improve citizens' daily lives. For Jean-Claude, a professor in urbanism who specializes in social housing research. The desire to connect terrorism to social housing projects like the Grands Ensembles is oversimplifying. The majority of the immigrant population living in France was born and grew up in these Grands Ensembles because that was the main purpose. Often those you see today in Islamic radicalization movements or Islamists are children of the second or even third generation immigrants in France. They were born there. They are also French, and they are the children or grandchildren of the workers who were brought in the 1960s or 70s to work in industry in France. They were part of the population for whom the Grands Ensembles were built. They were born there, and many are still there. But I don't think that's a factor in the insecurity of the Grands Ensembles such that it is. There were many more significant things, much more specific to the Grands Ensembles in 2005 when there were revolts within these neighborhoods. Cars were burned. 
there really was a stigma against those neighborhoods, concentrations of poverty, concentration of exclusion. Terrorism was a problem that, in my opinion, goes far beyond urban issues and public housing. During one of the first reactions the French government had after the first attacks in January of last year, the prime minister said, we have created apartheid. That was the word that the prime minister used. In these neighborhoods, we have to begin to resolve this problem by better organizing what we call social mixité, by making sure the new residents of these neighborhoods will not only be poor people. That to me seems like an exaggerated reaction and a bit simplistic. Terrorist movements probably have as part of their root cause a desire for identity, to highlight an identity to people who otherwise are largely excluded from the workings of society through unemployment and need to identify with something. In part, no doubt, they identify with Islam, but it's not a given that they'll all become terrorists. Security goes beyond what the state can do to make us feel safe. It's more than police, more than curfews, more than terror warnings. It's also how residents interact with each other. And yes, the state does have something to do with that, but so does history. Family, social status, race, gender, religion, and immigration status. They all collide to give us our perspectives of the city, our ideas about what and where a threat to us might be. We'll delve into those ideas over the course of the series, starting next episode when we'll talk about diversity, or mixité as the French call it, and how it intersects with residents' understanding of safety. Thanks for listening. This has been Here There Be Dragons. I'm your host, Jess Myers. I'd like to say a special thank you to my sponsors at MIT Council for the Arts, who made this season possible. Thank you also to Corey Lee Jacobs for original music for this season, and check out his trio, Octopus 2000, on Bandcamp. I'd like to introduce you to a new member of the team, co-producer Adélie Pagemont-Ponté. You'll be hearing from her in the episodes to come. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you want to leave us a comment, email us at htbdpodcast at gmail.com. That's htbdpodcast, one word, at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at dragons underscore podcast. And lastly, if you joined us last season, you'll know that every interviewee draws their own personal maps of safety and danger. Check those out on our brand new website, htbdpodcast.com, where you'll find a number of treats, including a glossary of French terms you might be curious about. So join us every other week for more stories of fear, identity, and urban life.